Hola, mi gente. On this episode, we're going to talk about football or soccer, as some saying correctly. Clearly, I have a bias. It's actually one of my favorite uh, topics because it directly connects to my dissertation topic. When I started my program in anthropology, I was interested in religion, but kind of as a way to demystify a lot of the ideas or unlearn the ones that I grew up with in the cult. But I ended up actually uh, writing about religion, but soccer, which has become what organizes a lot of my time in terms of rituals. It's about community. It's about belonging. So for me, yes, I'm not a devotee of the Church of Maradona, but definitely Football not only is life, it is religion for me. Now, I'll talk a little bit about the beginnings of football. It can be found, honestly, in every corner of geography and history. The Chinese, Japanese, Italian, ancient Greek, Persian, Vikings, and many more played the ball game long before our own modern era. The Chinese, for example, play football games that date back as far as 3,000 years Now, the ancient Greeks and the Romans used football games to sharpen warriors for battle. In South and Central America, a game called Telachi once flourished. And also in Mesoamerican civilizations, they devised a game played with rubber balls, which resemble a combination between soccer, basketball, and volleyball. The game involved two teams playing in a sort of basin dug below ground level with baskets strapped in several locations on the side walls. The teams would then have to kick the ball towards these baskets and score a goal. Now in Europe, you see that there is a different timeline. The game gradually entered to the European territories, being the place where modern-day soccer will start in several centuries. Middle-aged soccer is covered in a combination of myth and historical facts, but one popular form of the game, mob soccer, involved in entire villages and towns and was rather chaotic, but the teams could have unlimited players as long as they were from the same village or town. Both teams had to kick the ball towards specific landmarks and defend their own. To add more chaos, the ball was made out of inflated pig's bladders or leather skin stuffed with all sorts of materials. Picture these two groups, these mobs, literally running towards a poor pig bladder ball, kicking, stomping, punching, pushing each other, in the attempt to kick the object to some area. I mean, I guess this is very early hooligan culture, as it is known. In medieval France, a game called La Choule was played in town gatherings, such as after Sunday church or on special occasions or holidays, which I think is really interesting because Sundays were once in my house associated with all-day church services, And for me, when I think of Sunday, I think of football. When I think of Saturday mornings, I think of football as well. The sounds of the stadiums, the narrator, all of it is related to my weekend. And I watch every type of league. I watch the Premier League. I watch League 1. I watch the Bundesliga, Latin American soccer. We follow the Argentine leagues. I mean, it's just part of the way we also congregate as a family. 
The game itself looked like a combination, the one in France, of soccer, handball, hockey, baseball, and kickboxing, since the players of each team had to strike the ball into the opponent's goal, using whatever means necessary and whatever excessive means necessary. For example, one archival record shows that players were allowed to use sticks or clubs to hit the ball around, although it wasn't always the ball that got hit, as you can imagine. The game was violent in nature, and I think a lot of it has to do because it does tap into certain primal instinct, not to sound essentialist, but I could see how it lends itself. And then you hear it also in the chants. I mean, you hear so much uh, racism, sexism, homophobia. I mean, it is all there. In many ways, it offers a window and mirror into Latin American societies and greater culture talking about specifically as it relates to soccer in the Americas. But in England, the game was surrounded by an aura of violence and was also considered a dangerous and sinful game. I guess this, again, in many ways relates to the idea that anything that gives you pleasure is subject to be demonized, but also criminalized. And so despite there was a ban in, even in London, and it was by Nicolas Fardon, the mayor of London in 1314. So imagine, despite this soccer grew in medieval England, and it was not long that it was introduced to English public schools in order to keep young boys fit, right? So then it became institutionalized as a way also to teach about teamwork, right? But again, thinking about physical education, you start seeing here how then it gets introduced also as a way to uh, socialize men or boys into ideas of masculinity. And you see this also in other parts of the world where some of these ideas are problematic, even arguably toxic. But then it gets reinforced through certain rituals or even within games. Since soccer was growing strong, let's say in English public schools, the idea of having an organized tournament sparked in the 19th century. In 1862, a solicitor by the name of Cobb Morley formed a semi-professional soccer club in Barnes called the Barnes Club. Cobb Morley is rightfully considered the father of soccer, but that's not just because he was the one to spark the idea of the soccer association. He drew up also the laws of the game, probably the most important document in the history of soccer because it held all the official rules around which the game could be played. And so these rules become official, so it gets institutionalized, it gets formalized, and obviously then it becomes industrialized. And we have institutions that are also subject to corruption within the sport because obviously, you know, a cultural institution and an industry can have competing and conflicting sometimes objectives. When I used to work at the United Nations, one of my favorite programs to talk about was a soccer program that they had in the summers in the Balkans for kids who traditionally and historically were pitted against each other in the greater society. They were taught to basically see each other as team members, to rely on each other, to cooperate, and that allowed them also to create a new sense of place and belonging that unfortunately because of the violence that happened in the Balkans, they had to still work it out, but it is always better to work it out in a soccer field than in a war zone. Sports in Latin America are not only about love and passion and euphoria, 
but it also provides a space to come together and organize. You see, when there is the national anthem that is sang uh, uh, or sung before each game, it doesn't matter how you see yourself. If you see yourself through party lines, if you're peronista, or if you're, let's say, someone who is poor or someone who is rich, uh, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. In that moment, you come together under one nation. And it's pretty impactful to see how it becomes a unifying moment, right? It also disrupts the everyday. It offers a form of escapism. But also, at the end of the day, it has a lot to do with maintaining certain values. Some sports are only gaining recent acceptance because of the success of certain athletes, right? Like in Latin America, you have a growing mixed martial arts scene because of different fighters like Ponsinibio in Argentina, Chito Rivera from Ecuador. I, you see these athletes that also each time they fight are wearing the flag, are representing the people. One of the fights I remember was the first time the UFC went to Buenos Aires and Ponsinibrio, who had to migrate in order to really pursue his career professionally and go through many of the shared migrant experience of displacement, discrimination. And he did it so he could achieve his dream. But when he was speaking on the mic, I remember I myself got choked up watching it. He talked about how he understood how things were difficult in Argentina, but that there was still hope to be had. And he felt that in one way he was able to bring a little bit of joy. And that really resonated with me because I thought of all the moments in which I had a sporting event in my personal history and that feeling of euphoria. I remember when the Mets won the World Series. I think it was 1986, and if that's the case, I couldn't have been older than six years old. But my father, he's a baseball fan. He follows it, listens to it on the radio. But he's also visually impaired. My father is blind. But I had this memory as a kid of him putting the chair as close as he could to the television so he could see it. And I myself never fully followed baseball, but that memory I hold so dear because I remember us celebrating. But by and large, I was more also growing up with a Colombian uh, family and, and, and cultural experiences. So I was going to see the juniors, which is the local Barranquilla team in Colombia. It was the first time I went to see a soccer game live. But for me, soccer was a passion or became one when I had my son and I saw how much he loved the sport and how much he learned about himself through it. Now, why are sports so important, let's say, in Latino culture by and large? Participants not only are entertained, but soccer leagues, for example, provide a space where they can discuss larger issues, such as even employment opportunities or legal status. And this actually became part of the research I did for my dissertation, looking at recreational leagues, uh, Sunday leagues, and there were a lot of people working in service industries, and they would go and congregate. And it was really interesting, too, when you would see two different ethnic groups kind of see themselves as other. And even though they will be working in the same restaurant, one time in Miami and South Beach, I remember in Flamenco Park, 
they would have Sunday leagues and it would be like the Latin Americans versus the French, right? And they worked in the same restaurant and sometimes it would get as contentious as you would see in any other type of professional game. And for many of us who were also working in these restaurants, would go and watch it and it was entertaining. So when my son started playing in the Sunday league in Chinatown, he played in Chinatown FC. It was great because it really represented I think the spirit of what the U.S. Will, team will one day look like. I mean, he played alongside Chinese-American, uh, Argentines, uh, Peruvians, um, Haitian, Jamaican. I mean, it was really beautiful. And I'm like, wow, in 20, 30 years, we'll have a strong team in the U.S. because they'll be all practically the children of immigrants. But it was one of those things where I saw how it represented a cultural expression and a space to establish existing or develop new social identities. And it was interesting because then I understood the sport on a whole different level. My son was a goalie. My husband played as a goalie. And I remember that takes a particular type of personality. I mean, you carry the, the, the weight of the team on your shoulders, right? But that gave me an insight into who my kid really was becoming. It peeled back another layer. And I've seen it now that he actually fights jujitsu full-time, how that experience in soccer, thinking about tactics, group, team, you know, that type of pressure also that he had as a goalie plays well in a sport where a lot is individual, but he has learned a lot about also solidarity and identity. And it's interesting because his cousins are half Brazilian. He's uh, Argentine, they're half Argentine. And in jiu-jitsu, obviously, there's a significant Brazilian contingency, but he understands some of the language. He speaks a bit of Portuñol, and he's following it. But it's so fascinating to see how also this becomes a way for him to create a healthier sense of self and health. Now, some of the sports in Latino culture outside, let's say, or throughout the Americas include soccer, basketball, boxing, football. And I watched them all, to be quite honest. But I think it is important also to think about the ways in which these uh, moments create an opportunity also to form solidarity with other groups, right? And make memories. For Latin American immigrants, uh, by and large, soccer represents much more than a sport. And so at the end of the day, when we think about why it matters in our culture, it has a lot to do with community and belonging. Uh, the practice of soccer among immigrants, especially those from the global south, seems to keep growing. And even in the last decade, you see it while immigrants face massive deportations, bias, stigma, discrimination. Soccer has helped them create useful ties to their communities and a sense of belonging here, especially in the United States. And so for me, this last World Cup gave me insight into what I want my book to look like because I realized that the research I did wasn't about that particular moment. I'm kind of like an ethnographic time. It was about the role to win that World Cup. It took a couple of years, but I look back 
And now I see how it brought us to this present day moment, whether it was the players who had to reevaluate their tactics, their sense of also loyalty to Messi and also to the legacy of Maradona, the conflicts that happened during the America's Cup where Chile had won uh, the previous year and how that also was laden with a lot of controversy, the FIFA corruption scandals, all of that. And in the face of it, this World Cup, when we congregated, my family, I actually watched it with them in Miami. It was about that ritual of coming together as a family. We had previously been uh, a bit estranged and it was through the World Cup, actually through sport. They had gone to see my son compete at the Pan Americans and I felt that even though time had passed, because we were also invested in my kids win, it, it allowed us to kind of come together. But then with the World Cup, we knew we wanted to at least watch one of the games together. And then I opened my big mouth and I was like, well, if we win, then we got to come back because then we do Kabbalah, which means rituals that happen. So we didn't want to not see it together. And I remember November 26 because I had gone at night to celebrate my anniversary seeing the cumbia band from Mexico called Ángeles Azules, one of my favorites. But that day, Mexico was taken out of the tournament by Argentina. So my husband and I made sure to not, like, you know, go Uber. Yay, we won because we were kind of a minority. But even within that, we were all rooting and dancing because we want the cup to come to Latin America to return back home, right? That was kind of the spirit of the moment. And then when we watched the final, we started at my family restaurant, our family's restaurant, Fiorito in Miami, which is named after actually the birthplace of Diego Maradona. I write a lot about this in my dissertation, which is currently, honestly, finally being converted into a monograph because now I know the story I'm writing. It wasn't only about the World Cup. It was like walking in and seeing that at the table is set Los Alvarez, our family. And it's actually a family that is three brothers. And I've been with my husband a lifetime. They have their kids. And we all sat there, we all celebrated. We all took out the photo of my father-in-law who we all wish was there, but knew he was watching from above. And at the end of it, there was a lot of healing that happened. And I realized that all of us, this family, that even though we're spread out throughout the United States, when we come together in total, it's 11 of us. We have a team. And that's why we play together. We go through it together, but we're kept together for a love not only of the sport, but for each other. <laughs>